0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In our morning service, we've been on a series about the life of Joseph. We've entitled that series, How Big Is Your God? Uh, That question is a good question for us to ask because how big our God is determines how well, we live our lives now. Understand how big our God is doesn't depend on what we think about how big He is. Okay, <laughs> He's as big as He is, regardless of whether we realize it or not. But the question we're asking ourselves is, how big do we perceive Him to be? And we've seen in Joseph's life that uh, so far He's been big enough to carry him from the shepherd uh, of the sh- being the shepherd of the sheep to being the prisoner in the pit to being Uh, the uh, the second in command uh, in the nation of Egypt but I don't want to talk about Joseph tonight I want to talk about Zion church tonight Uh, certainly our question in that series is about how big God is to us and how big he is to us makes a difference in our lives but I want to say this, how big God is to our church makes a difference in the life of our church. And there's something special about Zion Church. Now, I don't mean that to the, that he's more, it's more special than, than Five Mile or Bethlehem or some other church. That's not what I'm talking about. But in comparison to the world and to the world's churches and the denominational world out there, there's something special about Zion, Primitive Baptist Church, and indeed all of God's churches of like faith and order. But I want to focus on Zion particularly. What I want to do tonight is talk to you about, just briefly about how this church began. And, and we all know that it was many years ago that the church was founded. And ask ourselves the question, is, is the foundation still good enough today? Is the foundation that it was built on then good enough for us to continue to stand on today? We all know that if you take that, um, that plaque out in the foyer and look at it and read it, it's written in longhand writing. It's a little bit hard to read, but it's got the church constitution and the church covenant on it, and it's also got the articles of faith. And you're going to find when you read that that Zion Primitive Baptist Church was constituted on the Saturday before the third Sunday in May of 1847. This year will be 173 years ago. There's not much left today that we're doing the same way we did in 1847. We're not traveling like we did in 1847. We're not farming like we did in 1847. We're not eating like we did in 1847. We're not doing many things in uh, 2020 uh, that today, in 2020, that we were doing in 1847. Things have advanced and changed and modified and you might even say evolved. Uh, We are on a different level of income. We're on a different level, different standard of living. There's so many things that have changed. And so intuitively speaking, I guess we'd probably think that the church needs to change, right? <laughs> isn't that, not that naturally what we think? Well, okay, so many things, our, our homes, our jobs, our technology, all that's changed. Surely, surely the church needs to have changed some since 1847 maybe change its practices maybe change its doctrine probably that's some old fogey doctrine some old fogey practices from back in 1847 right there's a lot of churches out there let me just say this not casting aspersions okay there's a lot of churches that were founded in the same time period and if you go and look at what they were doing then and what they preached then and how they conducted services then, and you compare it to how they conduct services today, there's a lot of difference. A lot of difference. Where are we at Zion Primitive Baptist Church in 2020, verses 1847? Well, now, certainly you'll you would probably see there's some changes. There were changes that we've experienced uh, even since 2011 when we started meeting in the old building there. We've, we've changed some things. We've changed into a new building. We built this building and we've got um, uh, a nice place here and we, we've been blessed in that regard. So there's been a few changes like that and I'm sure you know, those kinds of changes are not a big deal. Uh, the Lord never did really care where we met. <laughs> uh, they started out meeting in homes and, and so forth. Uh, so, you know, the, does the place really matter? And, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, it doesn't really matter, okay? The type of building we meet in doesn't really matter. But, but does the way we conduct our services and does the things that we believe, do, do they matter? Absolutely they do. And let's, let's, just, let's just talk about that now for the next little bit. Because I want you to see by the end of this service, and I think you already know this, that Zion Primitive Baptist Church is still conducting its practice in the way they conducted it in 1847 and is still preaching the message that they preached in 1847. And that kind of consistency is not common in the world around us is it but there's a reason for it <clears throat> there's a reason that we have that consistency and I, again not to not to let you in on the secret at the end but the reason for that is because we did not come up with the doctrine or the practice for the church you see God gave that to us so let's, let's talk about it for a minute. What I want to do is I want to use, as I've done before in some messages in the past, I want to use our articles of faith. You, you know, we have articles of faith in this church. You say, we never voted on any articles of faith. No, we didn't. Because in 1847, they voted on articles of faith, and they adopted articles of faith. And so far, they've been good enough for us for the last 173 years. So let's talk about church practice. In our church practice, we have a simple worship. You know, if you could, somebody asked me, what's the difference in the worship at the primitive Baptist churches versus the worship at most churches in the world today? And I'd say it's the simplicity of the worship. You know, God is so good to us that he didn't make something complicated, so complicated that it takes a a seminary degree to figure it out most of our preachers most of our preachers down through the ages of time have, have many of them if not most of them have had no college education but you know it didn't take a college education to figure out how the lord wants us to worship him in his church it doesn't take a seminary degree to be able to worship the way we do. We have a simple worship. And our first article of faith tells us that we worship the one true and living God. Listen to this. This is article one of our articles of faith. We believe in one true and living God and that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I don't see a place we need to change anything from that article of faith. It looks to me like what they believed in 1847 is good enough for us today. Why is that? Well, because Genesis 1:1 begins the whole story of God's Godhood. He says, in the beginning, God. You know, that's good enough. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Most of the religions of that day, most of the pagan religions of, of the time when, the, when Moses uh, penned those words, they had what they called an origin myth. And, and it wasn't just a creation myth about how the world was created, it was about how their gods came to be. You know, uh, Zeus, we think about so much as, as the great god of the Greeks, okay? But you know what? Zeus had an origin. He had a father. They were the titans, okay? Cronos was his father, and they were, they were these great, terrible-looking gods that ended up uh, Zeus had to fight them and kill them, you know, and destroy them. And it just, but there was an origin for Zeus. There was an origin for the Babylonian gods. There was an origin for the Egyptian gods. But our Bible starts off, in the beginning, God. That's all we need to know. Where did God come from? He came from the beginning. <laughs> he was in the beginning, right? When was that? It was in time immemorials. So do you mean to tell me God has always existed in the beginning God? That's all we need to know. And by the way, if you can get past that first sentence of the first verse of the Bible, you, you, can, you don't have any trouble with anything else that you read about in the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If, you know, if, if you have trouble with that now, and the evolutionists do, You might as well stop there. You're going to have problems throughout the Bible. But if you understand that in the beginning God created this world and this universe, you don't have a problem with the fact that that an axe head floated. (laughs) He created the elements. He can make them do what he wants. You don't have a problem with the fact that that a deaf man was made to hear or that a blind man was made to see or that a dead man was raised to life. You don't have a problem with that because you realize God is a creator. And that's, that's what they believed in 1847, that he is one true and living God. He is the only God. Monotheism is the theological term, but that just means that there's one God and there's no other. <laughs> Isaiah 46 and verse 9, he says, remember the former things of old. You know, sometimes I, I realize that we've got a lot of education and a lot of knowledge today that they didn't have in years past um, and I'm thankful for most of it I'm thankful when I go to the doctor today they don't just bleed my blood out you know trying to heal me I'm glad they know more than they did back then knowledge is not necessarily a bad thing but it also is good for us to remember the former things of old sometimes remember that you know if all else fails if all else It passes away, knowledge passes away, we can remember that God is the creator. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. (laughs) Right there, you lost Bill the Babylonian, okay? You know. Right there, you lost Ed, Edgar the Egyptian. You know, you, you lost all those folks back in that day. They didn't understand this. They didn't believe this. In fact, in Egypt, there was a time when they had a pharaoh that was a monotheistic pharaoh. He believed in one god, not our god, but in another god. And he, he tried to make them be monotheistic in, instead of what they call pantheistic, which means they believed in all kinds of gods. And they got so mad at him, they killed him and overthrew him, you know, and, and tried to erase his name from everything, see. Right there, you lose most everybody else in that day. But praise God, remembering the former things of old, we know that we have one God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. You know, if I, not too long ago, I was... Uh, I hadn't even talked to Brother Buddy about this, I don't think, but you know how you see somebody and you say, "Hey, that looks like so and so else." We had a uh, we had a veterinarian come up and work on a cow, and she was about Sister Rachel's age, about her height, looked a lot like her. I, that's all I could think of to describe to Sherry that said she reminded me of Sister Rachel Taylor Abernathy Taylor, whatever. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so. Uh, you know, there might be people that, that you would describe as saying, well, uh, he's tall like Brother Buddy. Uh, he's fat like Brother Chris, you know, or something like that. You know, you might, you might say he's got these. You, you compare people to describe them to somebody else. But let me say something to you. You can't do that with God. He said, I'm God, and there is none like me. Tell me what God's like. Well, he's like, oh, no, no, he's not like him. Well, he's like, no, he's not like him. Uh, you know, there's, there's a reason I believe they didn't have cameras back in Jesus' day so they could take a picture of him. And we really don't have any paintings of Jesus. whatsoever. You, know, you have paintings, but they're not of Jesus, let me say. We're not supposed to compare him. We're not supposed to be saying, oh, he's like this person or he's like that person. He is God And he is unlike any other entity in the universe. And It's also important to remember a fundamental principle. Hosea 11 and verse 9 says, For I am God and not man. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But sometimes you need to remember that he's God and you're not. I know I have to sometimes I need to remember he's God and I am not there's a lot of things I think need to happen in this world a lot of changes that need to be made but listen to me I I may think all these things but he's God I'm not I think my circumstances ought to change my situation ought to change but he's God and I'm not as I said we've been talking about how big is God in our sight how big is our God is he big enough to trust the details of your life to? Is he big enough to trust your circumstances too? Well, he is whether you know it or not, but I hope you know it because it makes you feel a whole lot better. <laughs> you can really enjoy life a whole lot better if you'll remember that he's God and you're not. This article of faith says that he is a trinity. There are three persons in the Godhead, and these three are one. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse 7, the greatest, probably the clearest statement in the Bible about the Trinity of the Godhead. Listen to this. It says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We're going to talk about it in just a minute, but there's a reason I believe the King James version of the Bible is a version we ought to be using. Because there's almost every other version of the Bible that you'll pull out and look at will leave that verse out. They will leave that verse out. That's the clearest expression, the clearest statement that God is a great three in one. In fact, um, I'll say this, I don't believe it's necessary to go back to the original Greek or the original Hebrew, but sometimes it's interesting to do that. And if you go all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis in the first verse, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The the word for God there is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. The suffix I-M, E-M, in Hebrew is plural. Isn't that something? You know, if you if you got something like we add an s to it to make it plural, you know you got one cow or three cows. You know, for the Hebrews, what you would do is you'd add the suffix im to it, just like we add an s. Isn't that interesting that the very name of God, Elohim or Elohim, that is that is the that is the plural. (laughs) It's in the plural in the in the uh, uh, in the syntax of that language. Later on in Genesis 1, down towards the end of it, he said, Let us make man in our image. Just in case you don't have a Hebrew degree and, and don't know to go back to that, he makes it plain. He makes it plain right there. Let us make man in our image. God is the great three in one. Preacher, tell me how that works. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you, okay? I can't explain it. I can't describe it. I can only tell you it exists that way. And by being the great three and one, he is not three. He is one, you know? We always think about it in terms of one plus one plus one equals three. Think about it this way. One times one times one equals one, okay? And that's kind of the way it works with God. Let me say something about God. It says we believe in the one true and living God. And He is a great God. He is a great God. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 115, in verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. If you turn sometime to Isaiah chapter 46, we're not going to take the time tonight, but I read from it already. You... you you turn there sometime and you'll read about a God who has his way in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the land. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar tells us that in Daniel chapter 4. There's none that can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? He says in Isaiah 46, I have purposed it, I will also do it. You know, there's a lot of things I purpose that don't get done. I've purposed many things over the past few weeks i thought during the holidays i'd get my room cleaned up i purposed it but it's still in the same mess it was in when the holidays started but there's a lot of things that i purpose that don't get done but god purposes something and he does it see we worship the one true and living god simple worship we also worship as close as we can to the teachings of scripture alone our second article of faith says we believe that the scriptures of the old and new testament are the word of god and the only rule of faith and practice there's no board over overseeing zion primitive baptist church trying to tell us how to conduct our services or send us a preacher or try to do anything to affect how we do things we as an independent body of christ we are here to worship in accordance with the scriptures, you see, the scriptures we believe are inspired. Second Timothy three, verse sixteen. We could probably quote it, but just to turn there, just to, to get it right, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And you know, I'm thankful that He didn't stop there. He said, "All scripture is given by inspiration of God," but He also says something else about it. He said, "It's also profitable." <laughs> It's profitable. You know, that's what I love about, about God and how he's, what he's given us in this life. I'm so thankful, so thankful he saved us for eternity. But he was so gracious to give us some things here. You know, he could have saved us for eternity and given us no help in struggling through this sin-cursed world. And you know, I've said this many times, I'm thankful for the doctrine of grace, the doctrines of grace. I'm so thankful for the doctrines of eternal salvation. But how does that help me now? Well, the, the Bible tells us clearly that the Word of God, the Scripture, is profitable. Listen to us. It says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, through, may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The word of God is, what he's saying here is the word of God is all we need. I love to read after the philosophers. I love to read about Plato and Aristotle and some of the early church fathers. I gave Tim a book for Christmas about the early church fathers. And it's interesting to read about some of the ways they, their practice was so uh, almost identical to ours in that time. But let, let me tell you. I don't need the early church fathers. I don't need uh, Plato and Aristotle. I don't need commentaries. I'm glad we've got them, and they, they're helpful, but all I really need is the Scripture because it's given so that I can be perfect, that is, mature and complete and whole and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Notice that it's practical. It's practical. It doesn't just, it doesn't just capture your mind. Uh, when it captures your mind, it, it causes your body to come in line, you see, your actions, not just your thoughts. Notice it says it's profitable for doctrine to tell you, that is, to tell you what the right way is. And it's profitable for reproof, that is, to, to correct you, to get on to you, if you will, when you're out of the right way. It's profitable for correction, that is, to teach you how to get back onto the right way. And it's profitable for instruction and in righteousness. That's how to keep you on the right way. I don't need anything else. Do you? I, I, I think that's pretty much covers everything that I need. And that's what we believe that the Scriptures do for us. It tells us in 2 Peter, and we won't have to turn there, but chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21, that no Scripture is of any private interpretation. And that tells me that I can't just go in here and pull out what I like, and cut out what I don't like. You know, I've heard it said so many times that context is everything. Brother Sonny Piles, that statement by him, a text out of context is usually just a pretext. (laughs) I like that. You know, I could prove, I think I've told you this before, I could prove by taking Scripture out of context that Jesus and his disciples rode in a Honda. I can it says they were in one accord, right? You take that out and you say, oh, well, they rode around in a Canaan in a in a Honda. You can do that. You can do anything. You can prove anything by taking scriptures that you want and, and using them in a private way. But let me say to you, no scriptures of any private interpretation. It's not about you just getting it to say what you want. And it also means that it's not of a private interpretation of its own self sitting there alone. You've got to put it here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. That's the way the scriptures work. And that's why we need to be students of the Word of God. I also believe, and we believe here at this church, that these scriptures are not just divinely inspired, but that they are divinely preserved. Preserved. In uh, Psalms chapter 12 and verse 6, listen to this. This is David here saying, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of fire, purified seven times. Okay, that's a good description of the word of God. But now listen to this. Thou, speaking to God, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I don't only believe in divine inspiration, I believe in divine preservation. We believe that these scriptures are what we need. And I said before, I believe that in English, the King James translation is the best and is the one that we ought to be using because, as I said before, you've got verses left out, you've got verses changed, you've got things rewritten. You know, some of them, some of the translations will make... In the beginning of the, in the, uh, the forward to the translation, they'll tell you their purpose is to not get the literal translation, but to get the sense of it. Whose sense? <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> Whose sense? Somebody else's sense, not God's sense. God said what he wanted to say, and we need to stick to that. Simple worship. We believe that these scriptures are complete And there's no no need for any additions. What what does the psalmist say? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to thy word. Nothing else is needed. No extra programs, no seminaries no age segregation we don't have to take the children aside and teach them in a different way than we preach to the adults we don't need to have missionary boards that are set up to send missionaries and preachers where they want them to go we believe that there's no necessity for additions it's a simple worship simple practice we believe in scriptures alone We also hold to the two basic ordinances that are given to the church by Christ. This is our Article 7. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ and true believers in Him are the only subjects Christ instituted these ordinances for and that baptism by immersion is the only proper mode. What that says, in short, is we believe in believer's baptism. We don't believe in baptizing babies. We don't believe that anyone other than a believer is a proper subject for baptism. In, in Acts, the second chapter, about the 41st verse, it says, They that gladly received the Word were baptized. Not those that had, couldn't hear the Word or couldn't understand the Word, those that gladly received His Word. And by the way... Um, you say, well, why do you immerse? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Jesus went down in the water where John the Baptist was, and that sort of thing. But you don't have to even go that far. You can just look to the definition of the word baptism or baptizo in Greek. It means to fully immerse. In fact, the word baptizo in, in ancient days talked about dyeing a garment. That's what it was. That's what it was applicable to in the ancient writers. That Greek word was talking about taking a garment. and and putting dye on it. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to dye a garment by sprinkling it? (laughs) Doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work, it just gets a bunch bunch of spotty mess It makes a problem there. You dyed garments by completely immersing them in the dye and leaving them there for a while. And when that word is now used uh, to, to, to denote what we now today call baptism, it still refers to immersion. And by the way, the, I mean, think about it. What, what's the purpose of, of the ordinances? The ordinance of baptism is a demonstration of the gospel. You know, we don't have to have plays and that sort of thing out here in front of everybody to demonstrate the gospel. We don't have to have, have to have interpretive dance to show forth the gospel because we've got a couple of things called ordinances that are that are demonstrations of the gospel message. You take a believer who professes Christ and you, you go down into the water and you uh, immerse that person down under the water and you bring them back up out of the water and that's indicative of the death and the burial and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You take the Lord's Supper, you take the communion service and you have the bread and you have the wine and And that's uh, showing forth his death till he come. That's primarily focusing us not upon his resurrection but upon his death. Uh, Although the resurrection, I realize, is part of that. But he says when you do the communion service, you're showing forth his death till he come. Anytime the blood is separated from the body, you have death, don't you? There's no way anything can live any, any person can live with the blood separated from the body, and that's all you have seated out there up on that table is the blood represented by the wine and the body represented by the unleavened bread. And those are our ordinances. We also do something that Jesus said you ought to do. <clears throat> now, I know people say, well, he didn't mean you had to do it. He didn't say thou shalt do it, right? When my daddy said, son, you ought to go out there and feed the cows. If I was still sitting there an hour later and hadn't gone out there to feed the cows, I ought to have done it. (laughs) And I knew I ought to have done it. Jesus said, you ought to do this. And he's talking about washing the disciples' feet. And we do that as a part of all of our communion services. Now, whether you consider that a part of the... Ordinance or uh, something we do in, in conjunction with it, I don't care. But let me say to you, it's something we ought to do, okay? And that's why we do it. And by the way, that, that's, Jesus is so amazing. I and mean, his wisdom and his knowledge is so far exceeds ours. You know, what better thing could he have given us to help us exist or coexist in the church as as fallen sinners i mean i I, there's nothing better you know he could have given us a catechism to read or he could have given us a, a plaque to hang or something no the best thing he gave us was the lord's supper followed by the the washing of the saint's feet you know we we can't exist here we're we're fallen sinners Brother Bob prayed this morning, and I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he's talking about how amazing it is that all of us were here together, and without the Lord, we'd just be a bunch of people gathered together. And that's the truth. And without the Lord, we would just be here, uh, sort of a social band here, but, uh, but he is with the Lord's spirit here, we're bound by ties of love and fellowship, and he gave us, even then, an instruction to wash each other's feet to remind us that we're sinners and we need to forgive each other. And we need to serve each other all throughout the year. So far, I don't see a need to make any changes to any of these articles of faith. It's been working pretty good. Church practice, simple, simple worship. Well, what about the preaching, okay? There's some articles of faith that talk about the message. Once again, it's a simple message. Someone asked me one time, what do you as Primitive Baptists believe? And I said, you know, probably the best summation of our beliefs is Matthew 1.21. He shall save his people from their sins. And we just, We're just simple enough to believe he did it. We're just going to have to accept that he saved his people from their sin. Now, we have several articles of faith that, that delineate this, Okay. So I'm going to skip around a little bit, but one of the things we still preach today is that man in nature is dead in sins. Our Article 4 of our Articles of Faith says, We believe in the doctrine of original sin and the impotency of man's recovery in and of himself from the fallen state which he is in by nature. That simply says we believe man in nature is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, You hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and in sins. Dead means dead. That means you're in in nature. You have no spiritual acumen. You have no spiritual life. There's nothing spiritual within you. The tale of the fall of man begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He says, in the day you eat thereof, speaking of the tree of the knowledge, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. There's only ever been two messages preached in the history of the world. Do you know that? You say, well, there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of religions, but there's only two messages. God said, thou shalt surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil said, thou shalt not surely die. That's the only two messages. Man either died when he ate of the fruit or he didn't. Man either died and became impotent to, to recover himself out of the fallen state he was in or else he didn't. And he can somehow get back up to where he was. that's the two messages you hear in the world today. And I mean within the Christian ranks. That's still the two messages that are taught. You know, I think I'll go with the one God taught as opposed to the one the devil taught. What about you? (laughs) 1 Corinthians 2.14 is probably the best statement. Of this condition that there is for the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness unto him neither can he know them for they are spiritually discerned <laughs> so man in nature is dead in sin so what what happened how is it that we're here tonight how is it that we're able to stand here and preach to you about some hopeful message well it's because God the Father initiated our salvation. Article 3 of our Articles of Faith says, We believe in the doctrine of election, predestination, and the final perseverance of the saints through grace, and that God chose His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's scriptural, isn't it? Romans eight twenty eight. For We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now don't let the old language where it says the final perseverance of the saints throw you. I know that there's a perseverance doctrine taught today that is contrary to the Word of God. It says that those who are children of God will ultimately persevere to the end in works and faith. Okay. In other words, if you don't do... If you don't persevere in faith, if you don't persevere in doing good works, if your good works don't don't mark you out as a child of God, then you never were one in the first place. That's what they teach out there. But notice that this says that this final perseverance of the saints is through grace. And that's the old way of saying preservation. (laughs) That's the old way of saying, back then it wasn't an issue. Everybody knew what they were talking about when they said perseverance and grace. That means that God had to keep you or you won't be kept. (laughs) Just the bottom line. God has to keep you or you won't be kept. There's no way you can keep yourself. And even the prodigal son has hope. Isn't that something? Even Lot has hope. Boy, Lot didn't persevere in faith, did he? Lot didn't persevere. Lot was committing crimes that would label him a sex offender today. The last time we see him. And yet, Peter says, he was a righteous man. Not righteous in works, but righteous in spirit because of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that God the Father initiated our salvation. He chose us in Christ. Remember Ephesians 1, 4, according as he hath chosen us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him and love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. God the Father in eternity past. You know, I know they were every, all the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were working in tandem. They were working together because these three are one, remember? They agree in one. They're agreeing on everything, so they're all there together. But we read about God the Father primarily being the one responsible for choosing His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. He tells us through Jeremiah, Behold, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. You see, God loved us. We were predestinated in love. So many people think that predestination is about wrath. So many people believe that election is about God passing people by. No, election is about God choosing people. Election is about God including people that otherwise excluded themselves. Is there anybody going to be in hell that doesn't deserve it? If you can answer that question, oh yeah, this one didn't or that one didn't, then God's unrighteous. But otherwise, if everyone in hell deserves to be there, you cannot blame God with unrighteousness. See, elections not about the wrath of God. Elections about the love of God. He said, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." That's what the doctrine of elections about. God having compassion upon those whom He chose. What a beautiful love story. And then Article Five of our articles of faith says this we believe that sinners are justified only in the sight of god by the imputed righteousness of jesus christ see god the father may have initiated our salvation but god the son executed our salvation he executed the, the covenant of grace remember romans 8 and 29 For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is his Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Over whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Justification. That's the work of the Son. That's the work of Jesus Christ. All the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed us straight to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospel according to Isaiah, okay, I like to call it that because that's what it is. In the gospel, according to Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and verse 4, he says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So many, all those that passed by, and the Pharisees, and those that were They were wagging their heads. They were talking about how, oh, man, he claimed he was the son of God. But now look at him. Look at what he's doing up there. Let him come down if he's really the son of God. They had no clue what was really going on there that day. Even one of the thieves, actually both of the thieves, <laughs> to start with, both of the thieves were saying, man, save yourself and save us in the process. We hate this. It's painful. You know, one of the thieves, though, got to the point where he realized he had a change of heart, Brother Buddy. He had a change of heart. Now, does that mean he changed his heart? (laughs) No. No. He had a hard heart just like the other thief because he was casting the same in his teeth. But something happened to him that we're going to talk about in a minute. His heart changed. And he saw him for what he was. He said, this man had done nothing amiss. We're justly condemned, but not this man. Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now listen to this. I like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the condition we're in. We just read about it. Man by nature is dead in sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that something? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. By the way, that's why you don't need to be mad at one another. You don't need to be mad at me and I don't need to be mad at you because we all have gone astray. And Jesus Christ died for every single one of his elect children. That's what Jesus did he executed our salvation when he died on the cross he fulfilled it but you know I mentioned that thief how is it that someone like him comes to know that well it's because of article six of our covenant our articles of faith it says we believe that God's elect shall be called and regenerated and sanctified by the Holy Ghost. That's the Articles of Faith from 1847. You know what that's telling us? God the Father initiated our salvation. God the Son executed our salvation. But God the Holy Spirit implemented our salvation right here and now. There's a reason that thief changed his mind and started talking in a different way. It's because the Holy Spirit had taken that old heart of flesh, and taken it out and put a new heart within him. And he saw now with spiritual eyes that he didn't have before, and he recognized the plight he was in, and he recognized that his only hope was the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why he cried out to him, not in order to get saved, but because he'd already been saved. (laughs) Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? Remember 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them. That's what plight we're in. That's why Jesus said, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how does it happen? Do I go back into my mother's womb? Do I do? No, he said, I'm going to tell you, Nicodemus, it's like the wind. It blows where it listeth. It blows where it wills. And thou seest the Passing thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh nor whither it goeth. Now listen to this. So is every one that's born of the Spirit. Every single one that is born of the Spirit is born in exactly the same way. Different circumstances, different time of life maybe. I read about a man on the road to Damascus who, by the way, wasn't looking for God. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He had papers to go haul Christians into jail, into prison, to have them murdered. He held the code of Stephen as a stone, the first martyr of Christianity in a Christian history. Oh, but on the road to Damascus, he was overtaken by the very one he sought to persecute, that he sought to destroy. And you know, it didn't take long, did it, Brother Buddy? He said, Who art thou, Lord? <laughs> he, he had already understood that there was something here that was different than before. But you know, if they're all born in the same way, then where does that leave us with the teachings in the world that you have to do something in order to get born again? you got to pray the sinner's prayer. you got to ask him into your heart you got to come under conviction, and then while you're under conviction, take the step forward. Otherwise, if you go back, you'll never be born again. Is there someone that we can read about that was in a condition where he wasn't able to call on him or to pray to him or to even form a thought toward him? Over in the first chapter of Luke, I read about such a one. First chapter of Luke, I read where Mary, who is carrying Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is carrying John the Baptist in her womb. And when, he is, when she comes into the presence of Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41, it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she explains what happened down in verse 44. She said, As soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. The babe in the womb. How many times have you tried to teach even simple addition to a baby in the womb? that'd be crazy right nobody A baby can't understand anything a baby doesn't even know how to talk when it's born but this baby was able to leap for joy <laughs> you know why he was able to leap for joy because joy is the fruit of the spirit and he had been born of the spirit while in his mother's womb and the bible tells us Jesus has said to us that so is everyone that is born of the spirit we're born again in exactly the same way and that means that If John the Baptist was born again without praying the sinner's prayer, without calling upon Jesus, without accepting Him into his heart, without praying through or hanging on or letting go or whatever else the people tell us out there that we've got to do, that means the thief on the cross was born that same way. And that means Paul the Apostle was born the same way. And guess what? Praise God, it means you and I were born in the same way. We believe that God's elect shall be called and regenerated and sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I don't see so far any of these articles of faith that need to be amended. I'm not going to put it on our agenda for our next business meeting to say, hey, we need to change something here because I just don't see it. Looks to me like they got it right in 1847. The last article of faith, Article 8, is one that sort of is the result of all the rest of them. And I'll say to you tonight as we bring this to a close that the only way Article 8 works is if all the others work. Now listen to this. We believe in a resurrection of the dead and a general judgment. Okay, I don't have time. Our time's gone to go into all the details of that. But let's just suffice it to say that because God the Father initiated our salvation, and because God the Son executed our salvation, and because God the Holy Spirit implemented our salvation, Jesus Christ is coming back for His people. That, that pretty much sums it up, isn't it, right there? John chapter 14 and verse 1, he tells us that precious statement about what he's about to do and what he's going to do about it. <laughs> Isn't that great? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He's not going to remodel heaven. He's not going up there to tear some buildings down and erect some new buildings because he ran out of room or he had too much room. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm going by the way of the cross to prepare an entrance for you into that city. He said, this is what I'm about to do. I'm about to go prepare a place for you and here's what I'm going to do about it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you Unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. You know, that's why I can stand here tonight and tell you that I enjoyed daddy's funeral. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it sounds weird, doesn't it? I enjoyed his funeral. I didn't enjoy the fact that we're separated, I didn't enjoy the fact that he suffered and that he died. But I enjoyed the funeral because when I, when I got up there I was able to talk about him and I was able to give you a little preview of what Tim was going to talk about. But what Tim got up there and talked about was the hope of eternal life. Amen. He was able to get up there and talk about the great hope that is an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and it's based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Daddy's salvation and your salvation and my salvation is not built upon what you did. It's not based upon a prayer you prayed. You might not have prayed it right. It's not based upon accepting Jesus. You might not have been sincere enough, you see. Oh, but it's based upon the Lord Jesus Christ making us accepted in the Beloved. Jesus Christ is coming back for His children. I don't see any of these articles of faith that we need to change. Because they seem to be based upon the scripture itself. Our God is big enough to have been here on the Saturday before the third Sunday in May of 1847. And he's big enough to have carried this church through a lot of ups and downs. And he's big enough that I feel him here tonight. And he's big enough for us to continue to build our foundation upon these things that were true back then.